Welcome to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today we spoke with Seth Kaufman of Floating Action, which uh, I was thrilled to get a chance to talk to him. I, I grew up listening to his music a lot. Um, I was part of the Park the Van Street Team, which is his early record label, so they would send me like samplers and stuff, and I, I remember being turned on to his music probably as early as ninth grade or so. Um, it's just this really interesting kind of like mildly dub-influenced indie rock uh, you know, genres always leave you hanging a little bit, but in general, very, very awesome uh, catalog of music that this guy's put out, and he's been living in the Black Mountain, North Carolina area for a long time, and he's collaborated with Jim James, Lana Del Rey, Angel Olsen, Dr. Dog, the list goes on and on, but, uh, you know, not to define him by his collaborations, his solo work is incredible and speaks for itself um his most recent record is called outsider art and it actually came out i want to say just right before we spoke to him um and yeah it was a great conversation i i was able to glean a lot of information that i didn't know about i didn't know that he had such a checkered like past with record labels that just uh you know seemed to not stick around for long after they signed him and, and, and lots of just crazy stories about his early career and highs and lows. Um, but definitely though it was a bit of a roller coaster for him, it has, you know, made for a great episode and, and, you know, I think it's all inspired him along the way and, and he doesn't seem to lose that motivation to keep making music. Um, and yeah, he, he really, uh, you know, going back to outsider art, I think that's a good title. Um, Cause outsider art, you know, specifically kind of talks about people that make art outside of like the kind of academic side of things mm-hmm. in art. Um, you know, like a lot of examples would be like art therapy or something like that. Um, there's actually in the United States, a museum of outsider art, which is just full of art that's made by people who are not, you know, really associated with the art scene at all, if right. that makes sense. Um, and to hear kind of his story and how he kept building and making all this art, regardless of, you know, labels going bankrupt and, you know, having personnel issues with, you know, friends that at some points were collaborating and at some points were kind of letting them down. Um, and it's kind of, you know, and also he lives in, you know, North Carolina. There's a lot of great music in the Southeast, but if you're trying to do it as a profession, that's a, you know, kind of hard place to do it. Yeah, that's up in the a challenge in itself. Um, um, and he still manages to, he's put out so many good, uh, you know, just like these awesome indie for lack of a better term, groovy indie records yeah, totally. as uh, floating action. Yeah. Well, we, we were thrilled to talk to him, and thanks so much for coming on the show, Seth. But we'll let the interview speak for itself, guys. Please check out Seth's newest record, Floating Action's Outsider Art, and check out the rest of them as well. He's got lots and lots of music that's just really, really great. Um, but, yeah, we're going to jump to it. Thanks, guys.
Because I had just made another album called Old World Camels right. earlier last year. And normally, I don't know, I mean, everybody's different, but there's usually, after you have an outpouring of ideas, you kind of have a little time, like another year or something, to gather more new ideas, you know? Yeah. But for some reason... And I was like last fall, and I just had all these ideas. All of a sudden, I wasn't intending to record anything for a while, and I just like recorded all these songs that became outsider art. There's actually there was a lot more, or at least like five or six more songs on that 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 didn't make the cut or whatever. Which right. no- normally, I when I do a, an album, it's kind of I only record as many songs as are going to be on the album. Right, not much left on the on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Nice. Kind yeah. Of... Do you think that the the ones that didn't make it out to the official release, do you do you think they'll see the light of day somehow? Um. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I think. Well, yeah. I think they will. For some reason, I don't. I don't even know. Part of that choosing process. It's kind of a spur of the moment, kind of weird thing too, because you know they can just turn the direction of what the album is gonna be like. And I had these kind of like half the album is kind of electric rock songs, and half is like sort of acoustic. And the acoustic ones are like a minute long; they're like not even full songs. And I just seemed to have this cool vibe with with those in there. I didn't want them to take the balance away of having too many full rock songs. Right, know? right. Yeah, you didn't. You wanted it to have that balance. Yep. I mean, it seems like uh, throughout the whole record, even on the quieter tunes, that that you're kind of leaning into the percussion a bit more. Like, you've always been a a great drummer, but. It seems like some serious chops are showing up on this record, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I have been into like this new belief that I've always loved percussion and polyrhythms and stuff, but like kind of just this philosophy that more of that is always better, like congas and hand percussion just kind of makes things better somehow. Yeah, man, for sure. I don't know the science behind it, but just do it, and it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a good example of that. I've been uh, heavily digesting uh, the tele- or the revolution will not be televised the past couple of days, and I mean, there's hand drums on every song almost, and and it kind of feels like the lead instrument, something like right. quite a bit of the time, and it, or at least like uh, it's informing the cues that it, like of what else is going on as far as the musical arc to it. It's cool. It's a great yeah. place to to start from because you can get expressive in a way that doesn't really have to conform to basic song structures when you're using that to kind of be your guide. Yeah. That's yeah, there's a lot more like uh, subconscious subliminal stuff with hand rhythms that kind of, because like, drums like bass is kind of like the intermediary between the vocalist and the drums right but like percussion hand percussion seems 
I never really thought about it until recently, like how important it is and how much brings this new dimension. Oh, for sure, man. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I've, I've been thinking pretty actively about actually and investing in some in some hand drums for if for no other reason than to be like Matthew McConaughey playing bongos on my porch in my underwear yeah. <laughs> or to put it to some sort of practical use just because I love I love them and they're I mean I don't have a whole lot of experience with them but I what I have done I've really enjoyed doing yeah I, I don't know man you think congas is the way to go if you're if you're if you're gonna get just one first Purchase. Maybe so. It seems to have that timber where it's, it's more got range usable. for sure. Yeah, sometimes I have some bongos too, but it it's just in that high pitch kind of range, and sometimes it doesn't really do the same thing. For sure. But I think I, I only have one conga that was um, all these years I've had it. I thought it was Tyler Ramsey. Do you know him? Yeah, he. Uh, he was in, was he in Band of Horses, possibly? Yeah. Yeah, okay, gotcha, yeah. I, this whole time I thought it was his, and then I, my wife was like, oh, no, that was my brother. She has two brothers. One one brother died before I met her uh, a long time ago, like in the 90s, but it was it's his conga, so it's kind of cool. Oh, man, well, you definitely need to hold on to that. That's an amazing keepsake to have. Yeah, it's funny having something for like over a decade and not knowing that it was so significant yeah usually <laughs> that's the reason you have it for over a decade right you know? but uh no that's awesome it makes the story a little sweeter that's a, a cool new take on something you've had for a minute yeah well man i i, I see that uh you're a, a big time bike enthusiast and uh i that is Definitely some common ground that you and I have, man. I, I scoot oh, around nice. Columbia on my mountain bike nonstop. Cool. Um, but yeah, have you been have you been hitting it pretty decently, getting some miles on the bike? Yeah, for sure. There's really good trails here in in Black Mountain, and uh, yeah, I've been mountain biking for like 25 years. Oh wow! <laughs> Somehow, more and more fun to me. I feel like we, I also just watched that Michael Jordan documentary. Did you see that? The last oh, yeah. Dance? I haven't seen it, but I've heard heard a lot about yeah. it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. But I kind of feel like I know that's obviously no comparison. But like, there's this Michael Jordan part of part of me on the trail where you memorize every little route and turn and like where your body needs to be before the turn and all these tiny little things. And you try to make it right perfect each ride like i try to make get like the ultimate most efficient fast ride possible and you kind of get obsessed with it you know <laughs> oh for sure man yeah and after you've hit that trail a few times you're start to know it like the back of your hand and it's and you get to yeah. i feel like for me a, a big goal is like getting comfortable with not like riding the brakes uh trying uh -huh. to get to where you know the the turns and how to approach them to where you don't have to where you can almost not have to break at all or yeah. you know, only have to break on those serious downhills but yeah that's cool man yeah i mean uh for me biking has like a, a ton of practical purposes you know it's like a great i like to think of it as like uh like you know if you're if your brain's just getting kind of cloudy and 
you know, you you need something to clear your head, it's perfect for it because you're just thinking one foot in front of the other. You're thinking about the agenda of the the bike route you're on, and it it's kind of a good refresh button for me at least. Yeah, like meditation. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, have you been uh have you been doing any session work lately? I know you've you've kind of got a pretty good uh resume as far as that is concerned man have you been staying at it in that regard uh i mean as you know it's a pretty crazy year yeah and for sure like live music just stopped it was weird i was playing in dylan leblanc's band we did a tour in february and it was kind of interesting like the op touring is like the opposite of quarantine you know yeah absolutely and we were like doing our tour you know every day every day you kind of hear something about coronavirus on the news but at that point it wasn't really like nobody was worried about it or anything we're just like oh coronavirus what's that (laughs) and then literally like right when we got back from that tour it was everything just stopped but uh i have been recording a ton there's a guy named israel nash and lives in texas that i played on his album last year um it's not out yet but he was like hey man i'm just realizing you know you kind of do everything at home and i can't really get studio musicians to come to my studio so you do do like try out doing a song so i kind of did that and uh, put everything on it and then I had a, a buddy in Asheville who plays horns on floating action records and he can do it remotely so I made a horn arrangement and he put horns on that Israel Nash song and it turned out like super good and <clears throat> it got me all excited and then I uh, sent like a voice memo of a clip of that song to my friend uh, Michael Now. Do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah. I think he toured through here with uh, with David Bazan, maybe. Yeah, he did. Um, but we're good buddies. We've been we tour together and record together sometimes. And I sent him that clip. I was like, dude, you should write some songs, and I'll put I'll do the instruments, and then we'll put horns on it. It'll be cool. And he's like. <laughs> I think we're kind of similar in that way. It's like almost a challenge where he just turns on the spigot of songwriting and they just, he recorded a song that night and sent it to me. And then I'm like addicted to getting all the instruments and the music part of it done. It's so fun to me. Yeah. So I did one, we did one in one night and then he did send me another one the next day. And then I was like, well, I got to get it done. Oh yeah, man! <laughs> that quick too, and then same thing. And all of a sudden, we had eight songs, like completely done in eight days, like written, recorded, mixed, everything, and they're super cool. And then he's like, well, "Maybe I'll just do two more, just so we have ten. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just finished. We just got it mastered uh, yesterday. Nice. Do you have a a rough idea of when when that might be coming out? <laughs> not really because we just i mean we didn't even really plan on yeah doing it or it existing but now it's kind of like whoa and he he's like maybe we should call it like a new band name or something because it's kind of different yeah. stuff it actually 
as you may guess, heavily percussive. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, kind of has like a Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone kind of thing to it. Oh, man. I want to check that out. That sounds incredible, man. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, yeah, I'm excited to see what you do with that. I'm glad you're uh, staying busy however you can, man. I mean, if, if you've got some sort of... Uh, at home recording setup now is the perfect time for it that's for sure yeah really thankful to be able to do that <coughs> well man uh did, where did you grow up did you grow up there in black mountain or is that were you uh, a transplant there i grew up in greensboro north carolina okay which is like two and a half hours east of black mountain yeah i'm familiar with it played there a few times over the years well <laughs> yeah, and, oh shit what was it i think uh it's a theater called the crown i think um okay. or something something or no the it's it's the there's a venue on top of a theater and the venue is called the crown but i can't mm. remember on top of what theater it is i couldn't remember and then i think the other place was a pizza joint the like new york pizza or something crazy but cool um, you know, the weird, the one that that was on top of that theater was like this bizarre, uh, I guess it, it felt like a variety show, and it was, we just didn't know what we were getting into, it was like such a strange bill, and mm-hmm. you know, part comedy, part bands, uh, I don't know, it felt like a circus almost, but yeah. but weirdly the thing sold out, it was like completely packed out, and it was like a crazy eclectic crowd age-wise and <coughs> yeah it ended up being uh super memorable in the fact that it was just we kind of we thought that it was going to be a kind of a washout not yeah and then it ended up being it was bizarre but it was well attended and uh an interesting and worth uh remembering night for sure whereas the pizza gig I think we were like, we may have even been paid in pizza, so it wasn't necessarily uh-huh. the most, the most uh, memorable in that regard. But it, I don't know. You always remember the like tour mishaps, so I kind of think the the shows where you end up getting uh, paid out in a in za are just as good as the one. You nobody's going around telling the stories about the shows where everything went perfect, you know? Right. <laughs> you remember the weird times early on when when you played to. 15 people and got paid in pepperonis yeah i know i might might even say that's like the the funnest part of touring is just getting obsessed with the weird negative things that happen <laughs> yeah right it's a, i mean it's funny like the the you all like i like i was saying you don't i mean not that the good the good times are amazing but you can appreciate them in the moment and you'll you'll think of those stories too but the the ones that are worth, you know, it's just a better, if you're talking about storytelling in general, right, that it's got more of a, a narrative arc to it whenever you have shit hitting the fan and yeah. seeing, seeing where it goes from there as opposed to, you know, it's not exactly a page turner if every page ends with good vibes. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, actually, I uh, speaking of Greensboro, well, like when I grew up there, it was a long time ago, just nothing going on like no like-minded people at all or anything you know no venues (laughs) yeah right but uh 
but now I think, you know, it's kind of changed. And actually, maybe last spring, played with in Michael Nell's band. We were opening for that band, uh, Lord Huron. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was like, we were kind of playing around that area, but there was one day off. And so Michael had booked this house party in Greensboro. And uh, it turned out to be super cool vibes, like in somebody's backyard in this old historic bed and breakfast kind of place. And it was really cool. And we and the memorable thing about that, of something that went wrong, was uh, we were playing, I made these cassette tapes of, of funk box drum machine beats. And we didn't have a drummer. We would, I would just put in new cassettes for each song. And we were doing that with Lord Huron. It was super awesome. It was cool. It was going great. And then we had that house party, and we're playing a song. Where all of a sudden, the seemed like the the rhythm kind of got off, and for a second, and then we all kind of looked at each other. We're like, was that us or the tape? <laughs> and, and it was just no big deal. And then like next song, we're in the middle of the song, and all of a sudden the beat just goes, <laughs> <laughs> and the tapes were indeed dying and that but we just were like i was like well michael do you want to just stop using the tapes and he's like no nah, let's just like ride it, with it and see what happens <laughs> and we were we just kind of like stayed with it it would slow down to like literally not even a moving beat and then speed back up and we'd speed back up with it oh man and that's it, incredible. yeah it was one of my favorite musical moments because it was pretty transcendent if that we only, somehow like we're locked in with it the whole time. That would be incredible to be able to watch back, man. I, I, I wish I it was documented somehow. Yeah, there some people afterwards were like, "Oh, that was cool the way you guys like you know changed the tempos." They just <laughs> thought it was Planned. supposed to be that way. That's wild, man. So, so you so you grew up in in Greensboro. When did you uh, when did you start? Kind of digging into music. When did you find the? Did you were you able to find some buddies who you could kind of uh you know enjoy music with and and, and kind of find that common interest with or were you feeling yeah. like an like your new album says kind of like an outsider <laughs> uh yeah definitely outsider but um i did my best friend his name is brian cates we actually started kindergarten together we were in the same class all through school so he was kind of my my guy. Um, you should check out his music, uh, Brian Cates, Brian with a Y. Um, and we would kind of he's started writing songs in high school, and we would kind of like at that point I was kind of more played violin a little more and mandolin and weird dulcimers and stuff, and I would kind of like back him up with that kind of stuff but but yeah there i guess there was a period and also i moved went to college at, in montreat uh which is basically black mountain oh yeah man i was gonna say that's like one of the only black mountain experiences i've had is going uh on trips with uh you know with other kids when i was in like youth group going to montreat when i was a kid yeah um <laughs> I still have a t-shirt, or a, not a t-shirt, but like a button-down short-sleeve flannel 
from like a thrift shop in Black Mountain from oh nice from way way like you know twenty years ago. Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, man. So did uh, did your did your buddy? I mean, if you were still was he, was he in Montreal as well, or were you guys? No, he he went to uh, Liberty University for a little bit and dropped out. Classic scenario, but he but we would it was the kind of thing where we would come home a lot on weekends and his dad uh was a pastor of this little church in greensboro and there was like an old the old building that no one used and there's a basement that we kind of had free reign of these it looked like the set of saw four or something it was like these old concrete rooms with nothing in them and we would uh set up a four track and spent a ton of time just staying up all night writing and recording songs during that time and uh, and then also like back at Montreal there was there was a guy named uh Chris Sorensen who started a band cuz Montreal there was only like 300 and some students when I went there in the whole college uh so he was like the only guy that sang and played music and he heard that I played violin so he was like dude you gotta play in our band and that was like kind of right when Dave Matthews band was coming out and right. it was cool to have a violin and a rock band <laughs> right anyway it was also interesting to note that that was kind of pre-internet and there was people went out to shows then and there was one venue in Black Mountain called the Gray Eagle which now it's in Asheville but that band with that guy we would play there and it would just be like packed every time you could just get people to come out it's amazing that's awesome and was it one of those things where like on top of you guys just making something interesting that was attracting people in that way uh but just also like when you have a small town like that you don't you're not overwhelmed with options for live music to see so a lot of people seize the moment a little more like uh there's a little beach town outer banks that some friends of ours live there and they're in this incredible band that's you know toured both the states and europe with with future islands and bands like that Mm -hmm. and and built up a pretty good namesake for themselves but also when they play in outer banks i mean there's no there's really no other bands there so when they play like anybody who's even remotely interested in music is all about it because you're kind of starved for it sometimes you know yeah. Um, I don't know if Black Mountain really has that, being that it's not far from Asheville, but, but you know, still it is a, it's definitely like a small little subsect of that scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, did definitely. You, were you able to, to find some peers outside of the band? Like, did you guys have any, like, other bands that you, that you kind of shared bills with often, or did you feel like you were just fine solo? Um, there's a couple bands. I also think even Asheville back then, this was like 95 or so. There just weren't even, there's way less people in general. Yeah. And just like, you know, like now in Asheville, I don't know, there's probably like 50 bands. And then there was probably like five, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Seemed like. Yeah, I guess I didn't, re- dawn on, or it didn't dawn on me how Asheville's, the big boom wasn't really until after that 
Yeah. My wife and I always talk about that. Like when we were going to college in Montreat and you'd like go into Asheville, downtown Asheville, was, everything was boarded up. Just like plywood on the windows. Everything's just closed. Total ghost town. Really? Was there like yeah. a, was there a big kind of, uh, a moment where they were thriving more before that? Like, what was it like in Asheville in like the seventies and stuff like that? Do you know much yeah, about that? Yeah, I don't that? know. I feel like I've read about that a little bit, that there was booms and then whatever. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, a million reasons can lead to that. Usually the... some kind of illegal, semi-illegal chemical plant that employed a bunch of people that finally got busted and <laughs> then right. everybody left. Yeah. There's kind of a lot of those out in the mountains. Yeah, I could like see hidden. that. Well, that, yeah, man. I mean, you know, I, I, I love Asheville. It's a cool town. I, I haven't spent as much time there as I'd like, but last time I went there was just a uh, an overnight stay with a buddy that we just got together just to ride bikes around there. And I thought it was going to be brutal just thinking, you know, I'm in the mountains. It's going to be just climbing all the time, but it's really not too bad, man. It's, it's a good like little hill? biking town. <clears throat> hill wise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of Hills for sure, but yeah. like if you're willing to, uh, you know, work, it, you get some sweet, uh, downhill obviously as well and it's it's yeah. never it's not as brutal as i thought it would be i thought that i would be you know just wear my ass out but yeah it's a cool little place to scoot around for sure yeah um so you know you're you're in this band and and the montreat experience is going on for you where, where did you go like post-grad did you uh, did you move away from North Carolina for a while? Have you kind of stayed there most of the time as your home base? Yeah, uh, I think, and actually this was like part of my thesis because I was able to, uh, probably is not a legit thesis, but um, that guy Brian Cates and I had made this uh, gospel album with these ladies from Winston-Salem that actually just, came out on vinyl a couple months ago nice but um yeah we made this cool album but it didn't turn out as what we had in our heads sonically and vibe wise and everything and it was just kind of a weird thing for <laughs> like just culturally and logistically for us to to play shows or anything with this gospel group and plus we're we're just like early twenties dumb dudes who didn't <laughs> didn't know how to book shows or you know didn't really take everything seriously and no one helped us so we just it just kind of fell by the wayside but uh that's what I was doing right when I graduated and then Brian Cates and I made an album uh and sent it to this blues label called high tone records yeah. that doesn't exist anymore um in la and they loved it and they were like we want to put it out and we're like oh cool i guess we should move out to la and like try to play shows is that what people do like we right. still just pretty clueless you know and uh we moved to a friend had a camp worked at this camp in uh near kind of near san bernardino or big bear in the mountains uh 
so we worked at that camp and we we're like oh we'll just drive into la like every day because it was like hour and a half two hours away we we're like it'll be fine and then once we were there we like never went to la <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that there's so much to distract you from the city with all the beautiful nature around yeah. in california i mean especially if you're going pch uh big sur all that stuff and yeah uh, Yosemite and I, uh, I hiked for two weeks on the John Roy Trail in high school and and it's incredible out there, man. Nice. Um, but yeah, so so you you didn't really make it into the city, but I mean, how, how did that you know experience go overall? Like, what where did that that record go from there? Well, I can't even remember what. Like high tone. It's just funny looking back now because that was like ninety nine, two thousand, and like, you know, knowing what I know now about how the world works and how much less we knew then. Plus, like, we still didn't really use the internet then, you know, and we were just kind of like so clueless. And they, we had a contract for an album, and we we're like, oh, I think you're supposed to have lawyers look at it but how do you find a lawyer and like it was <laughs> yeah or how do you it pay was just for kind one of weird. Or... like it all seems so easy everything's so easy to do now in general <laughs> and it wasn't then and we just i think they just we just kind of forgot about it but i guess the kind of the big shaper of living out there it was a great time um all kinds of cool surfing longboarding adventures and stuff but that was kind of when my friend brian cates kind of like maybe lost his mind a little bit and freaked out and was got homesick and just like stole a huge garbage bag full of welch's grape juice cans from the camp cafeteria (laughs) and got a greyhound ticket and uh went back home and he allegedly just drank those grape juices the whole like week greyhound trip back home that is intense man yeah so i mean we had like we're still best friends today but there was like kind of a little falling out where it was like oh he's like not really uh you know trustworthy as far as trying to play music with you know and then a couple years went by and i actually i was like well i just want to play music with somebody and the only thing i could think of was this blues guy in uh from statesville north carolina abe reed who was in a band called the blue rags back in the day oh yeah they were, yeah they were on I know pop. didn't they have I, that is that did they do uh eat it joe's i think is one of their yeah records. yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice yeah uh, they're awesome man I, I think i still have that record on my computer at home yeah yeah, one of the best live bands, for sure. I could imagine, man. I mean, they had that, like, ragtime, like a modern ragtime thing just down to a yeah. science. Yeah, and they're, they're, I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're all kind of crazy rednecks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of bring that, like, that wildness redneck it. energy to the table. Oh, yeah, yeah man. That's a, <clears throat> that, that is definitely going to spice things up a bit. Yeah. <clears throat> So, yeah, I moved back to North Carolina to play with Abe Reed, who was 
kind of the lead guy of the Blue Rags, and I played drums with him for a couple years. And then Brian Cates and I started playing music again because he, actually, I think he came, brought some ADAT recording machines to my house in Montreat where I live with a bunch of dudes in this cool roundhouse that was perched on the side of a mountain. And we recorded an album and we called it The Choosy Beggars was the name of that band. Great and, name. Uh, yeah, thanks. It was super good album because brian's songs are so good and we we're just like dude we should like try to make a go of this and like have a band and we we kind of did for a couple years and then <clears throat> similar kind of thing happened where brian kind of like panicked and bailed on me sort of and totally fine of course but at that that time i was like oh man i just can't invest any of my life with you know, waiting for him or whatever. So that that's kind of what made me start recording everything myself just to, you know, making songs up on my own just for, because it's so fun. But then once I got done, I, I had made an album called Ting that was just kind of a, just for myself or whatever, but I sent it to that label High Tone and they were, freaked out and they were like oh man we're gonna put it out and they did put it out <laughs> oh nice so they, they finally <clears throat> came through man that's awesome yeah but it was also like kind of the start again looking back at like all the trends and things that's with floating actions <clears throat> there's always been this thing where you get on a label and then the label folds and goes bankrupt like right after that or something yeah randomly yeah. and like you kind of get screwed so is that is that what happened with what well, <clears throat> was that record you said it was called ting yeah was it was that the name of the project or just the name of the record uh it was just seth kaufman okay so ting. this was yeah. I, I guess i had been under the impression that research was the first seth kaufman uh right release but yeah i, I have and i don't tell many people about ting but <laughs> is it is it is it something that can be uh, found at all, or I'm, is it pretty pretty? I'm not even sure because that was probably like oh five, maybe. Okay. And it was kind of that weird era of like nothing was was digit was like digitally available online yet, right? Yeah, I mean, or, or at least it wouldn't CDs. have been just a given that it would be on the internet like it is now. Um, but yeah, yeah so so, they, so but it did did they did they I mean they formally released it in some way so there should be hard copies somewhere right Yeah I mean there were definitely CDs like I think I still kept one like shrink wrapped and everything Wow but uh and they also high tone like had a budget and they for press and there's there was good press for it and like it got good reviews and everything but then I didn't really have a band or anything, and they couldn't help me get a booking agent, so there was just never. Couldn't really do the follow through, I guess. Yeah, just and then the label just fizzled out like right after that, so it was just kind of like dead in the water. I mean, I think that's that's the the uphill <clears throat> battle most musicians face, right? Is that they, you know, you spend all this time making a great record, but you, uh, you know, it's not a given that you'll know or be in a position to uh 
do everything that could be possibly done to follow through. I mean, because, you know, some people don't have the connections to book themselves all across the country. Even on a DIY level, it's difficult, let alone on a, on a level that's actually going to help push the record. Um, yeah. But despite that, I mean, how do you, I mean, I know you said you don't, you don't talk about that record a ton, but how do you feel about that record looking back on it? Are you, are you still proud of it or do you feel like it doesn't fit with the, I mean, I know that even uh, research kind of is really the first step towards, or uh, is a major step towards what floating action really became. Um, does does Ting not really fit in the same canon in your mind, or uh, it probably does? It just seems, in my mind at least, I, I literally was just trying to figure out how to record stuff, you know? Right. Which is nor I mean, I still don't really know what I'm doing, but <laughs> then it was like, it's just got a real harsh digitally digital sound to it. And I didn't even, I just didn't really even mix it or anything. And then I, when I sent it to the label, it was never mastered or anything. And they just put it on CD. It's, anyway, but that's, I think that's the wild, idea man. Is, Yeah, I guess yeah. 2005 is just a real... I mean, it's a, if anything, the record would probably serve as a interesting snapshot into like where the music world was at that time, and that yeah, you know, it's kind of in that vinyl pre-vinyl renaissance, uh, and like people don't really know what the best way to release. I mean, people are always trying to navigate that, but I'm sure 2005 was a, a weird time to be putting out a record. Yeah, and it was like yeah, you like still had to have your uh, what do you call it? Those black and white eleven by uh, eight by twelve glossy oh, of yeah. your band yeah. or whatever. Yeah, kind of like your like, uh... gotta have that. Gotta have it on CD. I often think about that too. With um, uh, I play with um, Ray LaMontagne sometimes, and we've made a few albums together. He's a great, great friend, but he. People are always like, <clears throat> "Oh, you play with him? Like, how how is he so huge? He's you know what I mean? Like, he's kind of a weird level of uh, he's just huge. Yeah, maybe but, like, maybe someone whose sound doesn't make it isn't it's not obvious that it that it would be that it would have that uh, long reach. Like, it's a it may be." really great music but it's not necessarily as accessible as something where it's like a given that this could be have an insane following you know it might feel like it's a little more uh like you're not to just keep pulling the same trick but you know kind of in that outsider art category maybe not to an extreme like wesley willis or something but you know it's still not i wouldn't consider it like totally radio friendly music right but I, I think it seems to me like, may, or I don't know what happened, but maybe it's that, that 2005 vibe of like, he, that's kind of when he blew up right. or maybe a year or two before that. And it was like when people still bought music on CDs, you know, like crazy. Yeah. That was and, like the only way they were buying it back then, man. Right. And it was like the last of that era and so he's like, got he had you know he had that luxury of having that 
huge thing, and now he's got these lifelong mega fans. It's pretty pretty interesting. Have, have you? Uh, so were you saying that you've? I know you've collaborated with him, but more on a touring level or on a recording level? Uh, I've I played on a, his last uh, three records. Cool. Recording, and then um, two summers ago, I was in his touring band. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, speaking of, speaking of just to backpedal a hair, when you were talking about uh, just the kind of the the consistent strange label scenarios that you found yourself in, um, uh-huh. I know that for at least one of your records, you put out on on Jim James's record label right is that is that label still active or is it kind of taking a back seat what what's going on with that it is not active <laughs> so it's yeah man it's some bizarre curse following you i guess yeah yeah i mean with that i wouldn't even say it was remove a door right yeah and it was just kind of like jim wanted to put his buddies cool albums out but there wasn't really any kind of infrastructure at all you know right so i mean for what it was it did it was fine it was fine you know Wh- there, which there record of yours did you release through it's called fake blood okay gotcha yeah so uh was jim at the time that you put that out was he focusing on some of his solo stuff at the time uh, i guess that was 2012 maybe yeah, so eight years ago, a while ago. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure the timeline of when he put out his first solo album or not. Yeah, I, I was just kind of curious what headspace he would have been in to be even in a position, you know? Because if I would imagine with you know something like a My Morning Jacket album uh, release and rollout, you know, it would probably be so all-encompassing that it'd be hard to imagine being in a position to focus at all on a label you know um yeah so yeah i'm just curious that's a that's a unique balance right there it's it's pretty cool that um i mean even if it didn't have that infrastructure it's just definitely a nice gesture that he's trying to find out avenues where he can collaborate with his friends whose music he appreciates and loves you know not yeah, losing a, losing sight of that connectivity there. Yeah, such a pure, noble vision of just wanting to, you know, good music, getting it into people's ears. Yeah, kind of takes you back to where you started out with, yeah, you know, just being a kid wanting to, wanting an excuse to play music in general. It kind of makes everything yeah. just a little more, uh, like you said, pure and just. Yeah takes the i don't know the music game there's a bit of a racket to it you know and some of it it you just kind of have to you feel like you're playing the game a bit and makes you forget about those things it's like makes you love it in the first place just being inspired by something and wanting people to hear it yeah um but yeah man i guess you know you you mentioned you know early on you're playing with the guys from the Blue Rags and playing drums, do you think that your long history with, with, with the drum kit is kind of where that, that natural like dub and reggae 
influence comes in to to your music just because that's such a you know classically percussive uh you know musical framework to be inspired by or where did that come from um the like reggae influence yeah 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 was there uh, a kind of a point where that became more of a something you were digesting heavily there i guess so it's maybe kind of weird like i i feel like the the reggae go-tos that most reggae fans have are like not the stuff that i like you know right i mean there's so much like really really incredible fairly deep cut underground-ish reggae and dub music out there for sure i always seem to like stuff i guess in general that that kind of um it's like some a thing, but then it's like a little bit off and a little bit dipping into something else that's like not really definable, maybe. Right. Because yeah, it's, I mean, it's as a genre, it can so easily flirt with other sounds, but still keep its like the sort of reggae backbeat to it or whatever, you know? Like you can, I mean, like that's kind of what's going on with, with your sound is that it's rarely, uh, there's really a song of yours that just feels like a straight up like reggae tune. It just there's just little percussive moments or you know a lot of it is maybe that like kind of upstroke guitar vibe or yeah. You know, but it, it but that's the beauty of that noticing. genre is that <laughs> oh yeah man of course it's it's, it's hard to miss it and I I'm a, I appreciate anybody who can I feel like that's a it's not the easiest thing in the world to to do a tasteful nod to, you know, cuz there's a lot of people who can uh, I don't know. I grew up in a in a beach town where there was like kind of a lot of weirdo oh, yeah. surfer white guy reggae things where right. they're like bordering on like misappropriation where they're like almost doing reggae voice. It's kind of yeah, yeah, <laughs> bizarre. Like good intentions maybe, but uh, not the best follow through. Um, but yeah, but when but you know, it's like basically. There's those guys who I could do without, uh, and then there's like you and Sting, basically, are the guys who can pull it off, <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you're you're in you're in good company as far as uh, people who've effortlessly pulled that shit off for sure. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, are there any particular uh, acts like that were kind of inspiring you particularly back then like you know i know a lot of people's guys like you know lee scratch perry or something is like kind of a go-to but you're saying you you listen to some more kind of out there stuff was there anything anything in particular you'd want to shout out well that's that's what makes it's kind of tough because i mean that's what's so weird about uh i don't know like you just kind of take in these primitive elements and like a lot of times you just hear something that somebody was playing that i never found out what it was or whatever but you know and it probably was lee scratch berry i don't know but right uh yeah just kind of like the that deeper and i i went to africa in 99 and and jamaica 98 or something but 
just kind of like playing music with the locals and kind of like realizing these deep, <clears throat> deep rhythmic things that are just everything makes total sense that that you don't really, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Well, I mean, that you think you're hitting on something there, man. Like, uh, what was the context of those trips to Jamaica and Africa? Were you going there kind of on a creative mission or were you just there and um, and made it happen because you saw some people playing or how do, how does it how do you go from being a just a a guy from North Carolina on a trip to actually getting in a position to to be jamming with these people who are over there uh, well the Jamaica trip was <clears throat> sorry uh with my buddy Brian Cates once again and it was like a kind of a church mission trip to build uh, church pews at, in a church down there and but it was the kind of thing where you know how third world countries their idea of getting making things happen on on time or anything happening on time just isn't a thing right and so the, the materials never came and we basically just like hung out for a week and didn't really do anything but Brian and I would play music for the church sort of just kind of like stuff that brian wrote and we would kind of back them up too but at that point like i knew what reggae was sort of but i wasn't like that well versed or anything we knew tough gong studios which is down there like we drove past that every day and we're like oh there's there's that but didn't really know that much about the history and everything then but uh and then when i was in africa that was just kind of like uh, i helped out some missionaries and just kind of lived out in the bush for a month with with a tribe and they they had millet the grain was what they ate and they would pick it and put it in these big piles and then they had these long uh, flexible like live branches from trees that they used and everybody would stand in a circle and like beat beat it at the same time and it's like this kind of hypnotic rhythm and they would like when all those branches thud onto the desert floor at the same time that it kind of like makes this deep bass sound that you can like hear a mile away and it's man, pretty intense that is awesome man it kind of it kind of makes me think of uh we spoke with Kit Malone from TV on the radio recently and we talked about are you familiar with the project Tanara Wind? Oh yeah. So we, yeah. yeah, we talked about that a good bit, man, and you know, he's saying that they would go and just record in these like certain like uh sonically workable areas of the desert but just still like purely in the desert not not even in like a cave or something like you know uh-huh. like something that you would have you know a cave you could at least have the walls to be like some sort of acoustics to play with but they uh would just use like the open spaces but find some some way to make that work and it's just this I'm just a crazy recording experience to have under your under your belt for sure yeah um yeah recording outside can be like it on on paper is such a cool idea but like a lot of times it has a weird thing that happens where 
it doesn't always sound good but yeah yeah i mean but it depends on what you're doing well on, on a small level recording outside has been kind of its own challenge for us for this podcast it seems like the neighbor always wants to do yard work or uh, or right. something you know but of course uh, but it's also kind of i mean if i'm going to sit and chat for you know an extended period of time it's it's great to just be outside on a nice day so i'm not yeah. complaining in that regard um for sure but yeah man so i mean I, that's cool it seems like you know whether or not you were aware of it at the time these these trips definitely seem to have informed your music over over the time one way or another i mean or maybe not the trip so much as the musical experience on the trip but uh but yeah it, it's it's cool how it how it pops up all throughout your career you know and and, and in a in kind of new and exciting ways throughout it it's never never feels like like a like a i don't know like a shtick or anything it just feels like a like I mean, you've settled into to a pretty specific floating action seth kaufman vibe but it uh it still has this really wide eclectic range like the new record just seems like you're touching on i can't quite put my finger on what but it definitely feels like some new musical territory like there's a I mean, like you were saying, there's that balance between some of them are a little more kind of rocking tunes and some of them are held back. But even on like a vocal level, feels like you're finding new ways to be expressive in that on in, in that front. It's cool to see that you're constantly growing, man. You're not you're oh, not pigeonholing thanks. yourself by any means. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is kind of like maybe the um, kind of the the pattern of my last handful of albums where it's been this kind of style of where you if you can record everything right when you're making it up right when the idea comes to you like record it just good enough that it's could be usable on the album you know like yeah. it's better than a voice memo or something or not distorted uh and then you kind of i kind of just make the song you're just like making it in the moment and i and I'm like, oh, I'll probably sing this melody later, you know, when I make up the words and everything. And then, but you don't, you're just moving so fast that you don't really take enough time to make sure it's in a key that your vocal range will fit. Right. So sometimes you, know? you unintentionally have to right, stretch yeah. your uh, range more than there. you planned. Yeah. So that's probably what happens when it's, yeah. But I also, and the this out, outsider art and the one before that, I definitely am dabbling in the world of like not putting any reverb or delay or any kind of effect on vocals. Yeah, just let or, it all be dry and and kind of is what it is. Yeah, which is like, I mean, I guess people did that. I don't know when the when the most that would be happening 80s 80s or 90s maybe but but now it's like no one would ever do that <laughs> yeah. like expose your naked voice like that well, but it's kind of cool of, like it doesn't always work but when it when it works it's like a really cool thing well that, i mean that that's like perfect way of of throwing a curveball into something that does have that 
that dub and reggae influence because obviously like historically uh the dub genre and and, and reggae stuff there's tons of reverb and tons of delay and like that's kind of yeah. a huge staple of the genre um but yet you're still like doing those nods without uh relying on that trick which is cool um but man yeah i've, I've been listening to kind of like some uh we spoke with chuck treese recently and he he has played in bad brains and with hr and that kind of got me down that rabbit hole and mm-hmm. listening to their their take on on it and how they can go from this like you know just incredibly fast paced supercharged kind of hardcore punk song straight into an eight minute long slow kind of jaw music yeah like experience and it it really actually is i mean it's kind of incredible as far as the flow it would give to a to a set because you know if you listen into 45 minutes or 30 minutes of just straight hardcore punk like it's pretty intense but when you have that yeah. that breather and even when they would do those tracks like they're playing the shit out of them so it's like it might be kind of a mellow groove in comparison but i mean with hr on vocals it's never gonna be there's just always gonna be like some pretty spastic energy underneath it it's cool man i really have been appreciating it and uh i don't know they're just a band that I, i think they've had like kind of a a pretty wild story but sometimes the I don't hear people talking about them enough. That those are some cool records for sure. Mm, yeah. Uh, but yeah, man. Uh, what? I know that you're kind of playing the same game that everyone else is, and and sort of just figuring out how to how to make it in this kind of intense uh, situation we found ourselves in with the virus, um, and and how that plays a role in you know whether or not you can tour responsibly or 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 anything like that um but do you have some kind of creative aspirations in mind for the for the upcoming like you know in the near future are you do you plan on hitting the studio again or you or what do you what do you see yourself leaning into for the the rest of the year um i have no idea and that's kind of the how it's always been for me i just yeah. never you know every once in a while there'll be like a something good comes along but like can never count on anything right yeah <laughs> and i was kind of used to that but uh but yeah i have a home studio so i'm pretty much always working on something now i got michael now sending me songs every other day and still so <laughs> nice dude I, yeah i can't wait dude see what becomes of that man that's that's yeah. a pretty great combination uh we th- might might call it king swiper might be the name of it oh, but i'm yeah. not sure well you've got our stamp of approval on that name man. <laughs> that's solid um yeah man we're, we're, we've uh we put out a compilation a few weeks ago that that was all like you know uh eric slick from dr dog recorded a sylvanesso song for it and Mike Watt from the Minutemen and Stooges did a Ray Barbie song, and we made this pretty cool 15-track compilation. But I think we're gonna shift gears to a for the second compilation to be original music, if for no other reason than to 
save ourselves the the licensing headache. Um, but yeah, uh-huh. if, you, if you've got any any tunes in the in the next few months that you think might be appropriate, uh, we'd love to to have you involved with something like that, man. Yeah, that could be cool. I'll stay in touch and see if the timing makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely always recording stuff, which I'm so thankful to have the home studio and being able to do that. I think I I also. Um, have a buddy who edits film in um, Colorado and he he was like hey do you ever do stuff for uh, not commercials but at, you know Santa Cruz mountain bikes oh yeah um, I guess their like female line is called Juliana you know yeah and they made these instructional uh, bike maintenance videos and they I made a song for that. Oh, that's <laughs> that awesome, came man. Out recently. I so love that kind of cool. that kind of stuff, man. Like, especially, it's got to scratch a different creative itch for you, you know. Like you, you're, it's like a, like a new challenge, sort of. Yeah. Like, can you write within this context, which is pretty cool. Yeah, along yeah. those lines, I also there's a new Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure movie coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, and. I think a lot of artists got asked to uh, write songs for that, and that happens a lot. Where like, you know, they just get a bunch of bands to record stuff, and then they, but they're only going to use one song or whatever. Right. So there's like, I know a bunch of friends who also did this, but I wrote and recorded four songs for that movie. Oh shit, man! I hope it. Pretty sure they didn't get used. But uh, even getting asked awesome. is pretty epic for that one, man. <laughs> right. But, I mean, uh, think about uh, who else is in that in that family. You're in the same. I mean, I know it's it's peripheral, but like you're kind of in the same. If you're talking about the Bill and Ted family, you're in the same family as George Carlin, which is pretty sick. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Keanu and Wild Stallions. That's. Yeah, good company dude. man that's awesome even i mean that's <laughs> to me even if if it, if it doesn't make it into it it's still part of the story right that you know if anything it could fit that the wacky mold of of missteps that we were talking about before that we all kind of go through and that you know you, uh that you're no stranger to either yeah yeah it, but it kind of put put me in that mindset of doing something you wouldn't normally do and yeah. like write total 80s songs like but it came out kind of good they're actually like i have a, a test where if my four-year-old daughter starts singing it like out of context then it's probably a, a hit you know oh yeah <laughs> well dude if it doesn't make the cut you should just put out you know an ep of bill and ted could have you know I think I think that's what I'm gonna do. Hell I yeah! To, that's awesome, man. Please do it. That label, people in a position to know, Pioptic, yeah, yeah, puts out yeah. my records. He, uh, I told him about that, and I was like, I might just try to write like five more songs uh, that are not '80s at all, and then have this like album of half '80s, half non. And he was like, No, dude, you should just. Because he had heard the Bill and Ted songs that I did, and he was like, "You gotta just put that as an EP." 
Dude, so yeah, it would. I mean, it would. I mean, again, similar to Ting, would be like a pretty sweet little snapshot into that creative space you were in. You know, I think it probably yeah. is a complete. And I mean, obviously, I haven't heard it, but just be- because of knowing what the intention was with the recording sessions, it feels like it would. If within that context, like it's a pretty probably a pretty fully realized and complete statement in itself. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah, uh have you put any thought into I mean, I know I might be getting a, getting ahead of you here, but have you put any thought into like a name for for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't Not know. Quite I mean, probably still just call it floating action. Oh, I mean, uh for the for the EP, the Oh, for the EP itself? Yeah. No, do you sound like you probably have a name in No, mind. I don't. I don't know, man. Uh <laughs> What's the newest? They've done Bogus Journey and they've done an excellent adventure. What's the new one called? Bill and Ted something. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like uh, I I know that they put out a trailer or something already, but I yeah. I need to I've stay told. on top. But I I would love the originals, man. They're they're me and my friends would watch that all the time as kids. Yeah, isn't that funny? How it was. And it was like a weird. You knew it was corny and bad but it was still so good oh yeah i mean it was kind of one of the early examples of that you know it's way before like like you know there's a lot of so bad it's good movies that mm-hmm. it, that we're familiar with now whether it be like i don't know snakes on a plane or the room the room yeah uh but back then not i mean I, there were you know spoof films out but not blockbuster ones really you know Right. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see it. It's probably going to be ridiculous to say the least, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I love that someone who's reached the kind of insane level of stardom that Keanu Reeves has isn't like above doing just an absurd comedy. You know, that's what the fans yeah. want. They <laughs> they'll take another uh, point break if they can get it. Oh yeah, <laughs> who among us wouldn't? Exactly. Well, dude, I remember that. Oh, what oh, were you going to say? Go well, when they were asking about those Bill and Ted songs initially, they were like, here's like, for this scene, they want this, and they would send some references of songs. And Anyway, they were like, these guys are kind of doing it, this whole movie on the cheap, like there's not, it's like an indie budget kind of thing, which I thought was interesting, that, even with Keanu. Yeah. Oh, it's cool that he's willing, I mean, if it's indie budget, that means that he's you know, willing to take a, yeah, a lesser-paying gig. It's not a what's the I can't remember the name of the of the is it John Wick or whatever is like the huge oh, things yeah, he yeah. does. Like you know, he's got like million-dollar contracts, multi-million-dollar contracts. I'm sure. So it's yeah. it's cool that he is willing to do one that's kind of more of an art or you know yeah. a passion project to a certain degree. I mean, I'm sure it'll bring in money, but it's it's not gonna be his. Uh, big check for the year i'm sure yeah but yeah man well keep us in the loop man i want i want to hear those songs whenever they're ready to be to be heard but uh i guess i'll I'll let you go man but it's been great chatting with you and hopefully we can stay in touch yeah for sure uh good talk yeah man we'll have a good one (laughs) and we'll talk again soon man all right yeah good to talk to you all right see you seth all right bye bye This has been 
a Comfort Monk production. <laughs>